0: Is this the reality that we are experiencing in our relationship with God? Is he our rock of peace? Is he our anchor all through the storm? Well, I can tell you right now that there are a number of people that this is not their experience. We, like Saul here, face a reality which seems poles apart from the songs that we have sung this morning and our opening passage in scripture. So why is that? And how can these words be true? Because they are indeed true. So let's look at our passage this morning for guidance and for a great understanding of our position before God and our relationship with him. Now, one challenge that we face is that what we have here is a translation. In other words, it's not the original text, but a but collectively spirit-led English version of the original Hebrew writings. And before you all reach for stones to stone me, hear me out. Unlike the Old Testament, which was in Greek, and in many cases was, from trans, was a translation of either the original copy or very, very close copies to the original, the Old Testament is a copy of a copy which in turn then has been translated. And when we get our version, both in the NIV and also in the AV, they pull from a number of different sources to get what is the best translation for us. Because if you'd have been sitting there this morning with your New King James Version, or if you had have been sitting there with the AV, you wouldn't have read what you read in the first verse, which was read by Dave. And it's not that Dave is reading incorrectly, he was reading correctly. And I'll give you the example. In the New King James Version, it says, Paul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. So that's that. If you remember, and hopefully you do remember, what was read to you only a few minutes ago, the NIV version reads, "Paul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years." Now I've looked at the different people who have been talking about it. I go to my favourite source, which is Gill, and Gill talks about the conflict that there is and the fact that there looks as if there is something missing from the version that was translated into the AV. And he would tend to agree with the translation that we've got in the NIV, even though he was some 300 years before then. So for today, anyway, I will take... why? What a preamble. Well, I will take for you this morning at the NIV. So for this uh, chapter starts with an interesting statement. It's not that Saul was 30 years old when he became king, because that was a fact that we know. But here we have a limit or an end to his reign. Way before his reign has ended. Whilst he is king, a line has been drawn under his time. He was to reign for 40 or 42 years, and then that was it. The end. Our time is marked out. We're not going to live forever. We are all going to die once. I don't know about you, but I don't know when I'm going to die. I could die today, I could die in 30, 40 years. This is by the grace of God. But sometime to come, I will pass from here into glory. I won't be like the Apostle Paul, sadly. I would love to see my children's children. I know my heart should be, and I'm a foolish man, my heart should be on going in and facing and being with God, but I have a human and weak side that would love to see my children's children first. But of course God may have other ideas, and if he does, then it's to his glory. The significance of verse 1 is laid out for us in the following 14 verses. Saul's open-ended term as king, which is what a king would expect to have, a perpetual line where when he dies it goes to his son or to his daughter and ad infinitum up until the family line ceases. But this was not the case for him. This was not his inheritance. It was going to be ripped out of his hands almost before he had begun. Exactly when this event um, occurred isn't too clear. You could argue from the AV version that it's in the second year of his reign, which would make him 32. Uh, It presents me a bit of a uh, a challenge, that one, because we also read that Jonathan leads the army of uh, of 1,000 against and causes the first battle that's been recorded here. Now, if Paul, if Saul is only 32 years old, that means that Jonathan would be about 15 leading, um, the army. It's plausible that that's the case. I'm not going to argue about it, but it seems to be somewhat unrealistic. So, one thing for sure is that time has passed. We know that, um, Samuel was retired and has at least reduced his role from being the judge to the chief priest, from the figurehead of the nation to a spiritual guide to the nation, and Saul is well established as king. And a relatively quiet piece um, of time has occurred. I know there is a battle in chapter 11, but the foe has remained the foe. And the Philistines, all the way through Scripture, have been the foes to Israel time and time again. And through this story, they're thrust back into the spotlight. Saul chooses 3,000 men, 2,000 of those he takes and 1,000 Jonathan takes and the other he sends back home. Jonathan makes the first move and attacks the Philistine outpost as Gibeah which lays the northern boundary of the kingdom of Judah which is about five miles south of Ai. Now you may remember Ai, that's where Achan sinned when the children of Israel went in there. The battle of Jericho and it was a glorious battle and then they, they lose the next battle against a very small town, an insignificant town. But it was because of the sin of Ahi, So that is where this battle is for, it took place um, with Jonathan. So Jonathan strikes the enemy, uh, but this seems to awaken the enemy. And it's a bit like a child going into a zoo and striking a lion. Or maybe foolishly hitting a wasp nest. Suddenly, it seems like a good idea at the time. But the response that f- comes out is one which is most terrifying. The Philistines amass 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and an army that it recalls here as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So soon they see the opposing forces and Saul's men start to scatter. The people see it, so as the Bible says, that their situation was critical. They're outnumbered. They're underprepared. And as you read in verse 16 and 20, which we didn't cover this morning, it appears that they didn't have any weapons, didn't have spears or swords. And also they appear to lack a technical knowledge. So much has declined since the battle that is recorded in chapter 11. In chapter 11, you see 330,000 men of Israel going in and having a convincing victory over the Ammonites, who were besieging one of their cities. Now Saul chooses 3,000 who appear to be unarmed, as we found in verse 22, and this decline has occurred under his kingship. I wonder if this is a, a, a result of their lack of reliance upon God and a reliance upon man and the arrogance of man, which led to their decline. The response from the people is that they start hiding in places, caves, thickets, under rocks, in cisterns, even so much so that some of them fled back over the Jordan, out of the promised land and into the land where they came from. Not so much of an army now then. No glorious victory was theirs to be seen, more of an annihilation. Even those who remained, and to credit to them they did remain, stood there, as it recalls in scripture, quaking with fear. And there they wait. And they wait, and they wait. So why are they waiting? Some say they waited in response to chapter 10 and verse 8, which reads as follows. This is Samuel to uh, Saul. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days... Until I come to you and tell you what to do. But the problem with that school of thought is that this is chapter, this is chapter 8 and verse 8, sorry, of chapter 10. And since then, Saul has met um, with Samuel at Mizpah. The people of Israel have chosen their king and anointed him. In chapter 11, you've got the battle with the Ammonites. Saul calls the people to go down to Gilgal. And there they meet with Samuel. And then he renews the kingship of Saul. So this is very unlikely that what we're talking about here is a reference to that instruction in chapter 10. So the event in chapter 13 does not follow because of Samuel's instruction in chapter 10 and verse 8, but as an unrecorded instruction to Saul, but it follows the example and pattern laid down in chapter 10 and verse 8. That in seven days he will meet him there. And I'll read it again. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely go down to you to to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So there is a seven-step pattern that Saul is supposed to follow. Step one, go down ahead of him. Step two, go to Gilgal. Step three, he will surely come. Step four, Samuel will make burnt offerings. Number t- uh, Step five, he will make fellowship offerings. as a peace offering. Step six, he must wait until he comes. And step seven, I will then tell you what to do. So where did Saul go wrong? Well, he failed to follow his instructions. The instructions were clearly laid down. A pattern that Samuel had laid down, given by God, And that he did not wait on God's timing. We will look at that in a few moments. Very importantly, it was not his place as king to make sacrifices. That was Samuel's responsibility. He was the king. Samuel was the chief priest. It wasn't his right at any time to make those sacrifices. So what should he have done differently? Well, he should have waited. He should not have made the burnt offerings, but he should have trusted in God and trusted in Samuel, and he should not have taken things into his own hands. So what was his response before being challenged by Samuel? Well, he completed the first four steps, so much so that he made the burnt offering, but he hadn't made the peace or fellowship offering. And upon seeing Samuel approaching, he then goes out, and in the AV it says, to bless him. And again, the king's role is not to bless. It is the chief priest's role to bless. So not only did he... um, produce the or do the burnt offering but he was also then going out to bless the chief priest he'd got everything the wrong way round it was a bit like a naughty child who's been told that he's not allowed to have some biscuits and he reaches up he opens the jar and he puts his hand in and just as he's taking the biscuit out his mother comes in and then he goes up and he shares the biscuit with his mother as a kind of, oh, these are for you. It's not his role. He shouldn't be doing that. He knows he shouldn't have been doing that, and his very actions show that. And what's really sad about this story, if you look at the timing of this, he didn't have time to do the peace offering, which shows you that if only he had waited an hour or so longer then Samuel would have been there and he would have made the sacrifices and everything would have been all right. You see, that's that's easy for us to look at. That. It, it makes sense, yes? It makes sense that we know that he shouldn't have done these things. We know that he should have waited. But it's easy for us to say that. We're looking at that from cold eyes, matter-of-fact eyes, The reality is that we're not in the turmoil that Saul was going through. The pressures that he was under. For seven days, he had seen his army melting away and leaving him. And his standing in front of the people was being eroded as every moment ticked by. So not just in front of the people, but also in front of the enemy that saw this mighty nation of Israel hiding and cowering and fleeing, and a king who was looking weaker and weaker and weaker, and the longer they waited, the weaker he became. So when you're in this situation, and when you're in this situation, you must have been, as we were talking about this, a thought about the times that you've been in these situations, the times when you want God to do something, you believe that God's going to do something, when you pray and you pray and you pray, and nothing happens. Time after hour after hour, week after week, month after month, even year after year, you don't get the response back from God. Now, if you look at Noah, for instance, they reckon that Noah... Th- There was a gap of about 55 to 75 years from when Noah was told to start building the ark until when the first animals started going in. Think of the ridicule that Noah would have been under by the people in the surrounding area. What is this madman doing building an ark nowhere near the sea? What is he doing? And look at the size of it. What a fool. Year after year after year of ridicule because he did what God wanted him to do. Or what about Moses, who in, around in his 80th year sees the promised land, takes the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, sees the promised land, but because of the sins of the people, initially, they don't go in. And for the next 40 years, he leads the people through the, the wasteland, the wilderness. And it's only as they're about to go in that he is taken into glory. He's taken up to a mountain so he can see the promised land by God and then he is no more. What about Isaiah? In a few weeks, we're going to read some amazing pieces of scripture that talk about the birth of the Messiah. They are beautiful words that that fulfill our hearts and lift us up today. And there are other bits in Isaiah that talk about the Savior and what he's going to go through. All of this he longed for, as the children of Israel did, 700 years before Jesus came. This is God's time. This is not man's time. So guidance and waiting on God is not easy, and we are tempted, aren't we, to be impatient, not to see things as God does. And you know it's harder than you think. You know that when you're facing that, it is so hard. It's so hard to trust. It is so hard to wait on Him. It's so hard. But if we do, we will be satisfied. But we will be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. If we do this, then we are complete. And if we don't, then we frustrate the will of God and we make our lives so unnecessarily hard. As the old song goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way. It's a simple song, but it is so true. And the problem with Saul is he went against clearly laid-down principles. You know, if we attempted to do something which is clearly not in line with scriptural laid-down principles for our life, in an attempt to force the will of God, or to force his arm, then... There is, without a glimpse of doubt, we are in the wrong and we are sinning. We cannot force God to do anything. And it is not our place to force God's hand. We are called to wait on him. With God, there are right things and there are wrong things. You know, there is no grayness with God. We like grayness sometimes. God is very, very clear, a right and a wrong. There might be, and this is not a word in the Bible, in, in, in a dictionary, there might be delayness, which in fact is God's timing. It doesn't fit in with our view of how things should be, but it fits in perfectly with how God sees things. We are not to force the situation but to remain waiting and praying and not without sleeping but petition but we are also called to serve, to serve, to serve and by doing so bring glory to him. Christian, first of all, are we waiting but not serving? Have we been given talents that we are not using? Are we part of the body, but not really part of the body? Are we a bit like a dead arm or a lazy eye or a mouth that is remaining silent? I've got news for you. Wake up. Serve God. It is clear. God gave you talents. They're not your talents to use for your purposes, but for his glory. Use them. And to my undeciding and rebelling friends, as I put down here, if you're living a life which is outside of God's will, then for sure you will end up in one place and one place only, and you're guaranteed to end up there. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. You are on a highway to hell. No returning is going to be required there. No narrow road for you. No rocky path. But plain sailing all the way to separation from God forever. However, there is a cost, and it has been paid. And that has been paid by Jesus. He has made it clear. He has made it a narrow way. There is only one way, and that's through. Him there's a pen just going down there and the cost to us contrition, confession and accepting his free will gift he has done the hard work he forgives deeper than you can ever imagine or you believe that you deserve so wait on God, put your trust fully in God and obey his ways for you. I commend these words to you.